Hello and welcome to the Sandro Forte podcast. Over the many years I've been running a business, I've met many, many successful people, entrepreneurs, sports stars, celebrities, and dare I say, even royalty. So what makes a person successful? Do we know what success is? And the all-important question, can we create success for ourselves? This podcast series invites a diverse group of people to share their insights, their wisdom, and the things they've learned along the way. I think all of our worlds will have been touched by some, if not all, of the work my next guest has worked on. Peter Dunn has worked in the film industry for over 30 years in senior marketing positions, including dealing with international film distribution. Some of the blockbusters he's worked on include Shrek, Saving Private Ryan, and Gladiator. He's worked for household names, including DreamWorks and Warner Brothers, and has been a long-standing consultant to the legendary director Steven Spielberg. As a contrast to his work in the film industry, Peter has also written an amazing book called The 50 Things, Lessons for When You Feel Lost, Love Dad, which was inspired by his three children. His book of letters was written as a go-to for his children so that if they should ever feel unsure about what to do in a certain situation, they can turn to the book to find out what dad would do if he was in their shoes. And I'm already smiling because I've read the book quite a few times. And this lovely man who I'm about to talk to today on the Sandro Forty podcast and I have already explored a couple of the chapters together uh, in a couple of informal chats on his own podcast. So it gives me enormous pleasure to introduce a very, very, very dear friend of mine, uh, Mr. Mr. Peter Dunn. I didn't even say that right. <laughs> uh, and already, we, we had a podcast, didn't we, uh, Peter, the other day about laughter. Uh, so I'm sure this is going to be a right old giggle. Um, but it has a, you know, I want, I want to try and stay a little bit serious, serious, if that's even possible, because you and I do go back a long way. We've had a lot of fun along, along the way. Um, but you've also been very successful in everything you've done. So let's start with, uh, with the sensible version, if Peter done, if there is one. Uh, tell us about who you are, where it all started, and in particular, the film industry. Okay, so that's a big, broad question, isn't it? How long have you got? So, um, sensible to a point, practical. I don't know about sensible. I don't know anything about who I am or what I do is sensible. But so I started in the film industry, if that's where we're going with this, I started in the film industry in 1984. And I know it was 1984 because the first film I worked on was 1984. And um, I was 21 and I was an assistant in a press office in a PR consultancy that dealt exclusively in film. And it was the best two years of my career, I think, because I had absolutely no responsibility, almost less idea of what we actually did. But I turned up on time every day and I was cheerful and helpful. And everybody was, it was just the most amazing experience. And of course, over that, you're, you're learning as you go. You know, you basically know absolutely nothing except how to answer the phone and stuff an envelope. Because in those days, of course, we stuffed envelopes. And um, I learned to love the film industry. So by dint of not getting caught out, I um, ended up running the press office at Warner Brothers a few years later, where I worked on some of their amazing films, such as The Fugitive and Batman and Lethal Weapon and Unforgiven and White Hunter Black Heart. And so you meet extraordinary characters, extraordinary people like Clint Eastwood and Joel Silver and Dick Donner, who produced the Lethal Weapon series, and Tim Burton, who was directing Batman at that time. And 
the the thing that always made me laugh about working in the press office at Warner Brothers was that there was always such a heightened sense of drama to everything. If nobody was getting a stomach ulcer, we weren't doing it right. And you kind of thought, you know, we release, what, 15 films a year and eight of them are big blockbusters. And it's like we generally get it right. And so there was sort of this realisation that there was a level of energy applied to the activity around the film that was separate from the energy of the activity itself. But there was this distinct sense of people making drama for the fun of it. And I sort of worked out quite early on that if I was going to stay in the business, I would have to learn how to dissociate from that because it was too exhausting. And the way that you dissociate from it, and I think this is true in any industry, when you have someone whose whole life is dedicated to the pursuit and the commercial gains of a huge corporation, that can suck you dry very quickly. You can lose all joy. Um, you need something that balances you up. And, and let's face it, a job will never give you an emotional reward. It will give you a financial reward. It will give you some sense of professional satisfaction, um, but actually it will never love you. And so I think a lot of people fall into that trap of thinking that the job will do that for them and then realize too late that it won't. And you, you, you meet you know, some people who become fairly embittered over time in every industry. So I was lucky to sort of have that realization and dissociate myself from that level of drama because as we like to say in film publicity, it's PR, not ER. And the, the moment I did that, the job just became fun. No matter what was going on, the job just became fun. And then I had the joy and huge good fortune at a point when I really thought I'd reached the summit of film publicity in the UK, I was offered the opportunity to become the head of international publicity for the newly established DreamWorks SKG. And that was basically from the point of their startup um, until they sold to Paramount 10 years later. And I absolutely loved every day of it. It was a very small company compared to, say, Warner Brothers and had a very, very um, shallow management structure so that my direct reports in each division were SKG, Spielberg, Katzenberg, and Geffen. Um, I mean, I didn't have a lot to do with David Geffen because music wasn't a big part of our business in the end, but I dealt with Jeffrey Katzenberg daily for 10 years and Steven Spielberg as often as his films required it and went around the world twice a year with Jeffrey Katzenberg to launch DreamWorks Animation and its films. Um, and I just had the best time. It was, it was my finishing school. It's where I really learned. I mean, you, you, know, you sit in the back of a car with Jeffrey Katzenberg's up front making calls and doing deals for the studio on films like Minority Report and AI and Gladiator and telling people the facts of life in fairly Frank Anglo-Saxon. And what you get is an enhanced lesson in communication that... I, I will never be anything, I won't be 10% as good as Jeffrey, but I've never lost the memory of you know, him being extremely effective no matter who he was talking to and being able to pitch his communication at exactly the right level. It's interesting you should say that, Peter, because I remember how we met uh, and it was in the, the private dining room of the Ivy Club in London, was it not? It was. And I remember... Uh, amongst a sea of, <laughs> of particularly inarticulate people, how, how articulate you were. So you've clearly learned quite a lot along the way. 
Well, bless you. I mean, I was obviously, you know, talking about stuff that I, you know, knocked about a bit for quite a while. I mean, I, I don't ever really claim to know anything. But the thing about film is that you, you know, every film is different and every time is sort of the first time. But you, there are principles to follow and there's a, there's a sort of a shorthand. You know, you do sort of recognise the signs, don't you? And you start to see the bus coming around the block and going, no, it's a 73, not a 37, or whatever the metaphor is you want to use. But you sort of start to develop an ease. And the thing is that what you find when you're dealing with people who are new to it, that there's a lot of second-guessing and overthinking. Look, in the same way that, you know, if I was trying to convince you to buy, you know, my advice is an, an IFA. Once you pick yourself up off the floor and stop laughing, and you know your ribs have stopped hurting, you would know that as a new person, I would over over explain an awful lot because I was telling myself as much as you. And so, obviously, that's I think what was happening in that room that day. There was a lot of assumption being made, a lot of second guessing, a lot of you know. But again, listen, everybody's doing the best they can, right? Despite the fact it was a quite awful experience overall, it was also very amusing. And I know well, it, wasn't because, it wasn't because I came away with you as one of my best friends. So I count it as a blessed day. I mean, you you may obviously remember it differently, but you know, no, the feeling is mutual. That is exactly what happened. Um, so, in terms of uh, just to try and drag us back on track here, uh, you now you obviously you work um, and you've worked for a long time, Peter, in a very competitive industry, and you've been at the top of the game. Uh, in that industry for a very, very long time, you know, three decades, what advice would you give to anyone, not just a career in film, but anybody in a very competitive environment? I mean, no more so than a number of industries I can think of today. There's a lot of people who do find it very, very difficult to find their way through uh, what what seems to become an even more bureaucratic process these days where everybody's yeah. competing, jockeying for position. Any Any tips and ideas that you can share? I bet it's the same thing that you would say. The first thing I would say is that, and this is, this is one of the things I said in the book a lot to parents of kids as much as to the kids themselves, stop worrying about the competition. You don't have to worry about how many undergraduates don't have jobs after leaving university because you don't need all those jobs. You need one job. And don't bother comparing yourself to anybody else because there's only one, you know, they're all taken. You can only be the best you that you can be. And I know that that sounds trite, but honestly, it relieves so much anxiety to get to that point. Obviously, try and find something that you would love to do. And if you can't find that, then love what you're doing, because actually it will transform the experience and it will move you on quicker. But mostly, I would say what I've always said to my kids, and I say it to myself, turn up on time, do your best. And if you can throw in a smile, you will leave the competition standing. Because a lot of people forget to do it. A lot of people still turn up to work with the attitude they had when they were at school. And it was a wet Monday morning and they didn't really want to be there. That's what you find in a lot of workplaces, a lot of people who are marking time and taking the wages because they have no choice. Mm. And they are, by the way, you need to adopt compassion for that approach as well because, again, if they could do better, they would. Mm. Um, but um, I think it's really that. I think it's just don't, don't worry about the herd. That's not your concern. And um, yes, it is competitive. And, you know, some jobs you'll be right for and some you won't. And you won't get every job. And, you know, I've never got a job that I applied for. I've only ever got work because the phone rang. I've sort of learned to not really bother about it anymore in terms of it. Because, you know, clients will ring and they've heard about me from someone else or, you know, we've met previously and they'll ring out the blue. And the timing, I sort of try and steer the timing because I think that 
I can influence it. What I've learned is that's rubbish. Mm. You know, I will sit here for months and nothing will happen and I'll write a book or I'll, you know, try and do something else to stop going crazy. And then the phone will ring and suddenly I've got three projects and they all want me to start immediately and I'm, you know, working 18 hours a day again. Do you, do you need to be a particular kind of person to, to work in that cauldron of pressure with all, with all the things that the film industry brings? Has, has, it, has it changed you at all or are there any... Uh, yes, yeah, well, I think what's changed me is experience because I don't get as exercised by it as I used to. I don't panic because someone else is panicking. I sort of look at them and wonder why they're panicking now instead of thinking, oh, I don't really understand what's going on. I should be a bit more... I don't buy that now. Um, and I think possibly it's because having worked at the level that I have and seen the people I've worked for who are legends handling pressure with great grace and dignity and effectiveness, I, I sort of always think there's a better way to do this and the person I'm dealing with just doesn't know that yet. So my job is to try and help them with that. So, I mean, first of all, look, you know, you're a successful businessman you've become a successful businessman because you know how to fix people's problems. You know, you, you're very good at articulating. Whenever I have come to you and said, what do I do about this? You articulate back to me very, in very short order the five aspects to this problem that needs to be tackled and how I would best be able to do that. You never fail to do that. You're a problem solver. And as, as, as self-employed people, that's generally what we are required to do. Um, but I think also the experience of working on films like, I mean, one of, I would say my finishing school really was Shrek. I graduated in Shrek. I was at DreamWorks when it was just a little side project and then it became this huge thing and it was the first animated film at the Cannes Film Festival in over 50 years in competition. And, um, you know, it went on to become a huge global hit and spawned sequels. And it felt the most amazing experience ever because, you know, you're starting out with this thing that nobody's heard of and suddenly taxi drivers are telling you, have you asking if you've seen it. And the thing about it was that there was not one moment in the lead up to the release where we all sat back and thought, oh, well, that's done now. We can all just, you know, we'll have a day off today. There was not one, in the same way that, you know, when South Africa were busy winning the World Cup in the rugby last year, I don't think when they had that enormous lead that you saw at any point they all decided to go and sit on the bench for the last five minutes because nobody could possibly catch up with them. You know, they kept going right to the last whistle. And that's the way it always is in film as well. It's always, it's always just an almighty push of 500 decisions a day and, you know, crises coming at you for the last minute out of nowhere and having to deal with them and rationalise them. And, you know, people... Um, you know, friends in the creative fields often say to me their particular problems that they're having. And I say, well, these are exactly the problems you should be having at this stage if it's going to be an enormous success. If the phone wasn't ringing, if people were not trying to take credit for your work, if, if marketing agencies were not using the wrong materials and correcting themselves, if people were not arguing about how much money is being spent on the advertising the film, you wouldn't be in business. That's just the facet of having hundreds of people all around the world working on your campaign and all of them making decisions that they shouldn't be making because they don't know any better. That's just life. But how you deal with it is the important bit. And again, you're very good at this too. It's about being in this pace of stillness, about being present in the room and dealing with what's in front of you as effectively as you can. I think that's all you can ever do, isn't it? I love this pedestal you've put me on today. Thank you so much. But I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
tell me, what's it like working with Steven Spielberg? Everyone would want to know that one. Well, all I can say is that um, he's one of the most talented um, and creative people I've ever met. Um, he's an innate filmmaker, by which I mean that you're not in his company very long before you realise that he sees the world differently. I think he sees the world through you know, a frame and just constantly it's images. And he's obviously very articulate in conveying metaphor through images. Um, his understanding of emotion in story, I think, is second to none. And obviously, because of the nature of the films he makes, it won't surprise you if I tell you that I think he's probably one of the nicest people I've ever met. Um, I mean, he's very understated. He's courteous to a fault. Um, I think he's generous to everybody he works with and his friends. And, you know, he's got a huge family, which is actually the most important thing in his life. I, you know, I mean, I wouldn't pretend I can speak on his behalf, but, um, you know, I, working for Steven Spielberg is a little bit like working for the Queen. You know, there's a huge amount of respect and awe. Um, and obviously it's a less, probably a less formal situation. Um, but I, uh, th there wasn't a day of it that I didn't love. No, that's, that's really nice to hear in, in, in any um, way I think the thing or business. That's, that's really nice to hear. Now, um, before we talk about your book, yeah. uh, I would like, if I may, I, I use that word framing uh, to describe uh, the way Steven Spielberg uh, sees things. I want to just frame this for a second, and I'm not going to embarrass you, and I'm certainly not going to ask you any personal questions, but, you know, you are a dad, uh, a husband, and um, I, I want to make everyone aware of the fact that life has been pretty tough at times. Would that be fair? Without going into any detail. Um, well, I can go into some detail, I guess. I mean, I think that, yes, yes, I'd agree with that. I think, I, but I would say everybody's life is at times. And I would also say that there's no hierarchy in suffering, is there? By which I mean that whatever you're going through today is just as significant for you as what I'm going through is for me. So. Um, I'm not trying to diminish what you just said, by the way, and, um, but I think a lot of the insight that I got certainly came through the, tough, the tougher times. Mm. Um, that, but that's no surprise. I mean, in a way, the, how we respond to the tough stuff defines us, doesn't it? Exactly. And if it's easy, you know, when everything's going swimmingly, you know, there's, uh, it, it, you, know, you, you just cruise, don't you? You just have a lovely time. And in, you know, but, but I think as you get older, when you have easier times, because you've been through tougher times, you absolutely celebrate every day. Um, I did a, I went on a meditation retreat a couple of years ago, and there was a lady there um, from Canada who was a cancer survivor. And she'd been at one point given four weeks to live. And um, she, um, she was very, very humble about it. And she said, we were talking about red letter days in our lives. And obviously, you know, we all talked about the birth of our children and stuff like that. And she said, you know, I always say to my kids, the best days are not the days when you get married or have champagne or, you know, you go to a film premiere or your book gets published or whatever it is, whatever your ap apogee of success would be. Those are not the days. The days to celebrate are the days when you got home from work and there was no traffic and you had an extra half an hour with your partner and the kids were great because they had a good day at school and you all had supper together and everybody went to bed happy and safe and you went to bed that night and could think of no major problems in your life. She said, those are the gravy days. And I just thought that was such a humbling thing because that's absolutely right, isn't it? If you've brought up children, 
you know, that actually that, you know, we all, you know, we have that thing of, you know, what's our go-to easy supper that they'll definitely eat and give them a full tummy, but pasta, pasta and cheese, <laughs> pasta, bacon and cheese. <laughs> and, you know, those countless days of pasta, bacon and cheese and story by the fire or up in bed and hot chocolate and a cuddle at bedtime and knowing that if your world ended tonight, that you'd done the very, very best that you could for your kids right there. And I think that's, um, I think that's what the tough times taught me. I mean, I'll just, I'll talk about that for a little bit. Um, just not to be boring, but, um, I mean, obviously, you know, we lost my mother quite young to lung cancer and that's obviously a thing that has happened to many, many families. Um, and then my, um, you know, sadly there was then, um, a dispute about her estate and her money um, in my family, which resulted in a very long court case, which just sucked up a lot of bandwidth. Um, boringly so, as we both know. Um, and, you know, then, and, and you refer to me being a husband, and of course what we both know is that I'm about to be an ex-husband, because one of the things that was a casualty of that process, the, the legal process, was my marriage. Um, so I think that, you know, you... <sighs> Life, life seems to me, the older I get, it seems to be about, if you, if you want to be successful at it, you better learn to let go. You just have to celebrate where you are right now. And I don't say that with any ease or glibness because I struggle with it every day. But I think that's probably the secret, is not getting too attached. Just because you think things are settled, you think everything's great, and life moves you on, and it can be bumpy. Um, but I think that probably what it's given me is some insights that maybe are useful to other people because I'm good at talking and a little bit good at writing. And I think that it's probably given me a lot of compassion because I never assume that the other person's having an easier day than me. Yeah, very well put, I have to say. Um, and I know that you've had some personal struggles, but um, you've always emerged uh, smiling and laughing and joking. You know, and I know at times it's been a very painful process and a very painful journey but uh you've always you've always remained true to yourself and i think that is a uh, great credit to the person that i know you to be um is that what inspired the book was it those early struggles or was it something else so what it was i think it's really funny so i started writing the book when i turned 50 so what had happened was i knew i wanted to write something for my kids and i had been flirting with the idea of writing a blog of some kind and I was talking with a friend in Los Angeles who works in film as well, and he had just had an insane Hollywood-style divorce that involved building two huge houses with master suites the same size, and I mean, just nonsense. But anyway, but fair play, he did it. And, um, he, but he was saying he was going to write a book for his sons called 500 Things I Wish I'd Known About Women Before I Started Dating. So we had a manly laugh about that in a politically incorrect way. And I said, you know what, though? there are not 500 things. There are three things. I have forgotten two of them. The important one is it's all your fault. <laughs> and we laughed again. And then he, and he said, but you know what? You have daughters and um, you need to write something that they can be proud of as well. And um, so I started to think about what would I write. And I thought, well, I just turned 50. So I'm going to write 50 posts. And it's going to be the things I want them to remember if I'm not here. Because... Part of the whole 50 thing is, you know what, you're over halfway, probably. Unless you're going to be like the Queen Mother, you're, you're over halfway. So, and you know, my, my mum died young. Um, I was just 30 when my mum died. 
And my dad has got Alzheimer's and the conversation with my parents these days tend to be, you know, really one-sided, right? So against that, you've got this thing of, there are not many days where I don't wish that there was a grown-up in the room to help me sort out whatever problem it is. And then I look around the room and realize, you know, oh, it's me. And so it was really just, if I'm ever not there, what would I tell them? And, and then how do you structure that? So what I did was I took, I wrote down 50 topics that I wanted them to reflect on. Um, and I just posted one a week, one every 10 days for the best part of a year. So the first one um, was compromise. Because actually, I think that's kind of a, you know, a good thing to get familiar with. You know, if you're going to live any kind of real life, you better had. Nobody gets it all their own way. Heads of state, monarchs, prime ministers, film stars, nobody gets it all their own way. So you better learn to compromise or you're going to have an unpleasant time. And then I wrote about laughter, which is, I think, where we kicked off. And then I was going to write another one. And then a very dear friend of mine died and I wrote about grief. And so the, the whole thing, although I had a list of what I thought I wanted to write, and then it sort of span its own organic thing. So, I mean, I had to, 10 days before printing, I had to rewrite the chapter on politics because the Brexit vote had happened and then the government fell and, you know, all of that. So um, there was a lot of responding to stuff as well as writing about universal themes. Um, but it was, um, it was beautifully received. It, was, it seemed to really chime with people. Um, my daughter was at boarding school when I was writing the blog and she used to, it got to the point where she would read out the blog in the dormitory when I published it. And um, one night she rang in, she said she'd read it out and four girls were crying and the other four were on the phone to their fathers saying, Amelia's father's written a book for her. Um, so <laughs> made parents even slightly awkward. Um, but so I was surprised because I, I was sort of waiting for the kids to go, actually, that was a really lovely idea, but could you stop now? It's embarrassing. And that never happened. They absolutely loved it. So, um, and then I was fortunate enough that it was published. So it's been great. I've really, it's been a really lovely thing. Mm. What was the most, um, of all those letters, of, of all the chapters, because they're all a couple of pages long, nice, easy read. Yeah. Uh, of, of all of that, um, what was the most important piece of advice that you gave to your children in the book? If you could find one out of all of, all of those chapters, I'm probably putting you on the spot a bit because you're now scanning the pages of your book. But is there a, is there a mantra? Uh, I mean, in the in the um, in the family environment which you have created, and I have to say, your your children are wonderful human beings, and that is testament to the way you've brought them up. Um, but what, is there a mantra that you've lived by as a family generally that that would trump anything else? Well, I would say if there's a mantra, it's what John Lennon said: "Love is the answer." I've never known anybody be inspired by being screamed at or, you know, yelled at. Um, and if people are screwing up, it's generally because it's the best they can do. Um, and if, and I, that's actually a very contentious thing to say, I've learned. People tend to dispute that more than anything else I say. But I would say even if they're screwing up, it's the best they can do right there. And then if they knew better, they would do better. So um, I think it would be that love is the answer. Um, I'd, I'd still caveat it and say, and still turn up on time and do your best and try and smile because life's just better that way. Enthusiasm tends to transform situations. Um, but it's, 
it's just to I wanted them to know and to remember how much fun we have had. And you know, we were a friend of mine said after the book was published, it was like you were preparing the handbook for what was about to happen because my marriage collapsed just after the book came out. And I sort of see that. And I don't know that I was that prescient, but it certainly sort of helped. And the it was sort of to remind them that whatever had happened subsequently, there had been a childhood that was full of laughter and love and happy memories and great experiences. And some of them are now written down and immortalized. And some of them are very, very funny. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but I would say, yeah, I, I think the mantra I would want them to take away from it is that love is the answer. And look, you know how much you love your own kids and, you know, what you would do for them. And it's, um, yeah, if you had six seconds left to say something to them before you sparked it, you'd, you know, probably I love you would be the thing, right? Yeah, so. absolutely. I, I would agree with that. And, and of course, there's a few more strings to your bow. You've got a, a theatre production that's... Oh, touch wood, touch wood, touch wood. So, yeah, my dad, my dad is an Irish writer of some renown. Um, and he, he wrote a book in the 1960s called Goodbye to the Hill, which was published on both sides of the Atlantic and was a bestseller. And it was made into a movie um, back in the 60s. And um, I've got a beautiful stage play, an adaptation of the the theatre version by an Irish writer called Owen Colfer, who some of your listeners might know as the guy who wrote the Artemis Fowl series um, of young adult books. And um, he's a beautiful, very generous writer. So he's attached. I've got his script. I've got a lovely director called James Grieve, who, um, like me, is half Irish and really understands the sensibilities of the play. We're out to actors at the moment, and I'd, I'd love to get that moving forward. It would be a lovely tribute to my dad, who remains um, the most banned writer in Ireland. Um, yes, he had the audacity to write about extramarital sex in the 1950s and 60s, when apparently nobody was doing that, and consequently was banned at a time when you could freely buy Harold Robbins. My dad, whose books now look laughably innocent by comparison, um, was and, re- and, re- and he will always be, won't he? Ireland's most banned writer. They're not going to ban anybody now. They've got gay marriage now. So, you know, it's all up now. Um, well, to fame, that is. Well, it is really. But actually, although I'm being glib to make the point, I'm really proud of him because, you know, in the 1960s in Ireland, um, if you didn't put enough money in the plate at mass on a Sunday, you were shamed and you couldn't get a divorce. No woman... Could, who had an abusive husband could get a divorce. Um, it was illegal to own condoms. Not just impossible because they weren't available, it was illegal. Um, a woman didn't have the right to choose. A man who was gay had better leave the country pretty quickly. And what we've seen in Ireland in my lifetime is 50 years of radical social change. And my dad stood at the forefront of it. He was, a, he was a banner carrier for it because he was the one who stood up and said, the priests are lying to you, um, and, you know, which obviously is now the widely adopted view. So I don't want to be anti-priest or anti-Catholicism or anti-religion, but it was obviously a different time. And um, it's a remarkable work. It stands up. Um, and I would really dearly love to, uh, to do that as a tribute to my dad. Now, no one is better qualified than you then, uh, given all that you've shared today, to uh, make a few observations about um, the way... Well, I was going to originally talk to you about the way the film industry has changed, but I think we can probably expand that topic and talk about the way the world has changed. And obviously we find ourselves 
facing or recently facing um, some fairly radical change that is going to, without question, change the way people see things. What would be your observations of life? Um, are there things that you worry about in terms of the way we seem to be going as a society? Um, do you think change, things have changed for the better over the last 20, 30 years that you've been in business? Um, what, what would be your general musings around uh, life and society today? Well, obviously, we're talking about this at a time of monumental change. You know, we're, here we are in coronavirus lockdown, and you and I are talking to each other as though we were in a room together. I can see you. We're laughing together. It's not as, quite as much fun as being in the room with you because we'd be drinking, but it's pretty close, right? And so I think that what we're all recapturing at this time is an essence of life as it used to be because we're obviously doing things in a slightly different way and living in a slightly less for well I would say I'm lucky enough I would say in a slightly less pressured way I'm sure for some people that's not the case and my heart goes out to them um, but the the thing I would say is that the changes I've seen in my lifetime I would say are mainly pretty good I mean I tend to be a life is a half glass full situation person and you know think about the amazing technology that we all benefit from I mean look a hundred years ago Nicholas Tesla predicted that in the future we would all walk around with handheld devices that would allow us to communicate instantly with anybody on the planet and also contain all the information in the universe I mean who knew it was going to be called the iPhone but that's incredible. And we all benefit from that. We take it for granted, absolutely, and we use it to send each other pictures and videos of cats and other stuff. But, but, you know, but it is the most remarkable thing. And we also live, okay, so we're all under the threat of this virus right now, and scientists across the world are working against time to find a solution to it. And in the meantime, we live in an age of mass communication, which has enabled people to respond to government advice and directives and take steps to protect themselves and their families. And, you know, even in spite of all the potential adversity, we're very blessed. I mean, look, we live in a stable democracy. We go to bed every night with food in the fridge and running water. And I mean, you ought to count your blessings, right? There are plenty of people who don't have any of that. And um, I think that, I guess that, you know, look, Christ in, in the New Testament said the poor will always be with us. Um, I don't think that means, I don't think he meant we shouldn't try and do anything about it. But I see also, look, mainstream news isn't paid to tell you good stuff. They're not paid to tell you about the huge amounts of philanthropy and altruism that go on in the world every day, about the huge amounts of money that let's okay, let's take a group of people who are getting a kicking at the moment, professional footballers the huge amount of charitable work that they do, the huge amount of money they raise as a group, as a profession, to support those less fortunate than themselves. Um, and again, you know, billionaire philanthropists giving hundreds of millions to develop vaccines and to support people. So actually, I think the world is a better place because we are more aware and I would say certainly my children's generation more socially conscious um, I get told off for making a lot of jokes. Um, but also, um, there, is, there does seem to be, you know, a genuine willingness to help their fellow man. So, yeah, I think, I, I feel it's a better place. Do you, you, do you share that view? 
Yeah, I think so. I think so overall. I think we, well, I, I certainly share the view that we take far too much for granted. I don't think we did back in the 80s. Uh, I think we do today because we are blessed with uh, so much in the way of resource that, that we didn't have some time ago. But um, yeah, but that's a whole different topic, isn't it? How do we, how do we find out more about you, Peter? Um, do you have a social media presence? I am, I am, after all, talking to a Gen Xer, so the chances are the answer to that question is no. But um, otherwise, how do, we, how do we find out about you? The book? Uh, well, the book, um, so there's a website um, for the book, which is the50things.co.uk. And I've actually been blogging. Um, I've started blogging again as well. And there's a link to that on the, on the book website. Um, I've started blogging the 50 things to do in a crisis. Um, partly to keep me occupied in the downtime and, um, and in case it's helpful to anybody else. Um, and I'm on Instagram as peterdunn.the50things, that's five zero, not the letters. Um, and I'm also, as I'd um, probably be remiss of me not to tell you, I'm working on the film version of the book as well, which is a really exciting development. And um, I'm looking forward to dancing up a red carpet with you, Sandra. Oh, well, what, I, I would don my, my best frock for you. Exactly. Um, so, finally, final question, as we ask all our guests, um, yeah. one of your children come to you and say, Dad, you know, you've written this amazing book and we've looked at you in awe and all that you've done and all that you've dealt with in the way of the challenges and, and obstacles you've faced along the way. Uh, if you could condense down all of that great wisdom into a single piece of advice to help me tackle the world that I find myself in, what would that one piece of done, uh, one piece of, one piece done, um, we'll edit that bit. What would that one piece of advice be, Peter? I think it would be, don't take it all so seriously. Remember to have fun. I think that when we're dealing with everything, at every stage of your life, it's always full stretch, isn't it? You know, you kind of, you know, you're, you're in a job and you're in your late 20s and you're working flat out and you're trying to be a manager or you're getting, you know, trying to work for a promotion. And then the next thing is you get engaged and you're getting married and, and you've got all that kind of craziness going on. And then you, if you start having children, it's automatically another level up and you're suddenly juggling all those plates that used to really stress you out. And now, you've been, so what, my point is, whatever, you, whatever stage of your life is at, it's always full stretch. So just accept that now and just take a deep breath and chill because remember to have fun with it. You don't want to look back and go, oh, I did it all perfectly, but I, I, I actually forgot to have fun. Don't forget to have fun. This is your life. It's not a rehearsal. That's what I would say. And that's actually the advice I would give myself now at 21. Just remember to have fun with it. You're not finding the cure for cancer here. And if anyone's in any doubt as to what fun looks like, they should come out on a night out with you and I. They definitely should. <laughs> um, Peter, thank you. Uh, you know, it's very easy to, to invite people that you know well, dear friends like you, onto the podcast. But uh, the reason I wanted you to be on the podcast is for everything we've just heard in the last 30 minutes or so. Uh, you've articulated it beautifully shared so many uh, poignant thoughts on your, your journey through life and in, and in business, uh, the lessons you've learned along the way, the fabulous book you've written, uh, the amazing job you've done as a father, and all the joy you bring to those around you, including me. And I want to take this opportunity to thank you publicly in front of lots and lots of people for being one of life's really terrific people. You're a lovely man. That's an incredibly generous thing to say. And you know what? 
I'm so thrilled you asked me to do this. I mean, it's always a joy to speak with you, but um, this was lovely and I love you. Bless you. Too. And uh, until the next night out then. Can't wait. Have we got that in the diary yet? No, we'll sort it. 